0: Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show. This time, Viv Albertine, one-time guitarist in pioneering punk band The Slits, now the author of two excellent books. The first, Clothes, 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 Music, 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 Boys, 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 is a brilliant memoir of her time in the band when she helped create the punk phenomenon alongside friends like John Lydon, Sid Vicious, Johnny Thunders and Mick Jones of The Clash, with whom she had a long-term on-off relationship. Viv's second book to throw away unopened is a family history that reads like a thriller. When we met at the London offices of her publisher, Faber, I commented on her willingness to confront the uncomfortable truths about ageing and loneliness.
1: I just don't like to shy away from anything, really. If I'm going to write something, whether it be a song or a book or whatever, I have to tell the truth as far as I can get to it. You can never get completely to the truth. And I also think it's quite interesting playing against... See, not all authors are known as a sort of personality. I'm only known a little bit as a personality, but it's a girl from a guitarist from a punk band. And it's quite interesting to play against what people think is cool. And, you know, I in both books, I try to really undermine the, the feeling that anyone's better than anyone else or you have to come from anything special to kind of make something of your life or attempt to make something of your life. And um, so talking about ageing and being alone is all part of my strategy to sort of deconstruct any sense of coolness I have around me and anyone has around anyone else. <laughs> you are
0: quite self-lacerating at, at times, though, isn't it? I mean, self-loathing may be pushing it a little bit, but you are very hard on yourself.
1: Yeah, uh, self-lacerating, possibly even verging on self-loathing, but it's something to do with when I was born, the environment and the society I was born into, the kind of family I was born into, you know, working class, one-parent family, born in the 50s. It was not, you were not considered really, um, you know, a sort of useful member of society to be a working-class young woman. It, It all... Sinks in. You know, there were no girls on TV. There were hardly any girls in anything. I didn't know of many female writers. I knew of no, hardly any female artists. You know, it was. There were no role models. It was. It was all subconscious. You know, partly it's society, partly it was my class, my gender. I think it all added up to sort of self-loathing. I think girls and boys more now, still have it. I mean, let alone capitalist society and consumerism and body fascism it, it, it's it all adds up to it and it's I could probably you could probably trace it all back to patriarchy and capitalism really
0: you touch on that in your first book in clothes Close, clothes Close, music 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 boys 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 in that you talk about how music and the Beatles in particular John Lennon is a massive turn-on for you in terms of cultural awareness but all of your early pop heroes were men
1: yeah, I mean, it would have been so great if there had been women that could have inspired me. I, I had no idea a girl could play an electric guitar. I mean, not only physically, but culturally. It it didn't even come into my head. Like, you know, I wouldn't think that back then that a girl could have been an astronaut. I, I didn't think, I didn't even think of it. So it's quite amazing I ended up doing something that I was completely unconscious. That a woman was allowed to do, so that's massive. I think to you know, in the seven, to have gone from someone who was mad about music, music sort of saved me. Music was my teacher, to end up being someone who was part of you know music. music. and I won't say music industry because the slits weren't part of the music industry. They didn't want us, <laughs> but um, and that was no bad thing. But um, yeah, so I think the first woman that really stuck out to me was probably Yoko Ono, and that was. John Lennon finding himself a very interesting woman, talking about her a lot, singing about her, her, her exposing her to us youngsters. Um, she was, you know, vilified in the press, as you know, and uh, but the young girls were really taken by her.
0: When did you actually think, you know what, I can pick up a guitar then and I could be this thing that I don't see out there?
1: Um, probably about 1975, 1976, so... I was about 22, which is late, to have grown up with no thought. And, and none of the Slits had any thought that they could be in a band growing up. Whereas all the other bands around us, the boy bands, in you know, the Clash, the Pistols, whatever, had all grown up with role models and had all posed in front of the mirror with a, you know, a tennis racket at home and a hairbrush and had all had someone to follow. Now, that made our progress later and slower... Our abilities not as honed, but at the same time it made the slits a complete one-off. We had no habits, no sort of you know old tropes that we just copied from before. Everything we did, we were very aware of, and we talked about how we stood, how we dressed, how we played um, the the chords, the chord progressions, the tone of voice, the um, language we used in our songs. Every single thing we broke down yeah because I mean I I was I'd done sociology A-level one of the first people to do it It as a new A-level when I, I was at school and I'd been to art school and I'd become politicized and I sort of brought that to the slits
0: yeah, Typical Girls, one of your best-known songs, is actually the name of the sociology textbook, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a, I can't remember how I stumbled, stumbled across that textbook because, don't forget, there was no internet at the time, but I did come across an, um, a textbook in a second-hand shop called Typical Girls, and, you know, I was bored, I was living in a council flat with my mum in my tiny little room and I just sat there, I just thought it was a great title and sat down and tried to write a song about it, you know. But, and, and it's kind of taking the mickey out what being a typical girl is what's expected of you as a girl in those days. And you listen to those words now and it's it's not really moved on.
0: You really don't think things have moved on for, for girls and for women since then?
1: Um, well, it's just thinking about that song, you know, and talking about how you're expected to, you know, you worry about your body and uh, your skin and not being too forceful. I mean, it's, it's still all there. I mean, of course, things have moved on, but in some ways they've gone backwards. So... Uh, I'm shocked about that because actually, at that age, I presumed that life was like a graph, and in all ways, humanity gets better and better and better. And women's liberation, as it was called then, would you know just be on a graph going up, as would kindness and you know awareness, etc. And I'm just amazed to have found out you know 30 or 40 years later that of course it doesn't work like that. And
0: what's happened? Why not?
1: I don't know why not. I'm not a historian, but I'm just interested in the Mm -hmm. fact that life doesn't just get better and better and better. It does have hiccups.
0: So you talk about discovering the idea that you could play guitar. You, it could be you in the mid-70s. But how important then was punk in unleashing that and giving you a vehicle to get on stage and have a platform?
1: Yeah, well, you've just made a classic mistake that people make as if punk existed when I picked up a guitar. We, between us, us few people, made punk a thing which wasn't even called punk till it was all over anyway. So it's not like there was a scene that existed called punk where girls played guitar. There were a bunch of people I met and between us we sort of fed each other's minds and got on on each other's nerves and were very strict with each other about what we thought and that has later been called punk. I I don't know, do you know what I mean? Punk didn't exist.
0: But in a sense, then, you made punk. You were part of the making of punk by doing what you were doing without it having a name.
1: But so many people say, how did punk help you do what you did? It it didn't. We made it. And I think that's important for other young people to know now, You know, because there's that saying going around, if you can't see it, you can't be it. But we couldn't see it, and we made it anyway. So even if you can't see it, you have to make things... You have to change your life for yourself to make it work for yourself, you know. If yeah. you've got, if you've got, you're lucky enough to have enough capacity in one way or another to do that.
0: Yeah, know. but you talked about the importance of role models or the, the lack of role models that you had. The fact that you didn't have those role models ultimately didn't hold you back, didn't stop you doing. You, you were going to be your own role model.
1: No, it, it did hinder us. It hindered us in terms of time. We got there later. It hindered us in time in terms of our ability. Eventually, because we came together and we were like a gang, we did spur each other on, give each other confidence. If we'd been on our own, it wouldn't have happened, you know, but we did all find each other, you know, the funny way that people do find each other and spur each other on, and ma- and we made ourselves bigger than we were as individuals. You know, the band was better than us as individuals, but... Yeah, it, it did hamper us, and I and I was very aware. Looking around the male groups, how they were written about much more readily than they were. We were. They were played on the radio. We weren't. How people didn't understand our music because they hadn't heard girls make music before. We were written. It was written in the papers that um, girls don't look good with guitars because people hadn't seen them i mean you know we'd play a gig 100 people or whatever at the beginning would come and none of them would have ever seen a girl on stage playing an electric guitar or playing drums or you know never so that's where we were starting from let alone the fact that we'd hardly been playing very long um yeah so it did it did hamper us there's no way i can pretend it didn't and you know sound guys wouldn't look at us people wouldn't talk to us people wouldn't manage us it, it was hell basically But because there were four of us and we were very strong girls, at least some of us were, (laughs) especially me and Ari, you know, we pushed on through. But we, we had no real sort of success in our time. Now, 40 years later, and because of the internet and young people going on the internet, discovering the past musically, they've sort of given us another lease of life. But we were not taken seriously at the time. We've become cult now, but we knew we were really good at the time, but... They just weren't ready for us, you know. It's, it's an
0: interesting point about audiences. The only time I saw the slits was at Wolverhampton Civic Hall in May 1977. Only the second gig I'd ever been to. And uh, you were on the bill with The Clash, with The Buzzcocks and Subway Sect. But you were first on, which doesn't help, I suppose. But throughout that gig, you were assailed with spit, which of course was the fashion at the time, but jeered and booed pretty much all the way through the set. And I'm guessing that was quite... Common at the time for your gigs.
1: Yeah, we were jeered and booed and spat at, on stage, off stage, on the streets, on public transport, in shops, by you know, by people who ran ran the world. You know, doctors, dentists, teachers, everyone hated us. I mean, there were just a small bunch of people that we knew, who um, you know, male and female, who treated us like normal human beings. Out of the whole of London.
0: And I suppose at the time, though, you must have been particularly disappointed because I I take your point about, you know, punk didn't exist, you you helped to create it, but there was supposedly, anyway, an open-mindedness. And there was an open-mindedness amongst some members of the audience. John Peel played your tracks as well, gave you sessions. But clearly that message wasn't something that everybody bought into. A lot of people just didn't get it.
1: No, I mean, you know, things that are different and stand out, they take time to be absorbed. And there's that American saying, you know, the first ones through the wall get bloody. And we got bloody because we were the first through the walls. It it, it didn't matter because it made what we did so great. But it was annoying from a personal point of view because we could see these bands around us who just played 12-bar rock formations and, you know, posed like the Rolling Stones... And they're still considered radical. I won't name any names. Oh, go on. (laughs) (laughs) No, and they're still considered radical. And they weren't. And we knew they weren't. And we knew we were something... Our songs were good. What we did was great. And what we were doing sort of, you know, socially was fantastic. But it's just a bit of a bore when you can see other people are going to take 40 years to catch up. I mean, you see the McDonald's ads now. They're completely ripping off the Sex Pistols cover. You know, the torn paper, the, you know, electric yellow and pink. And I thought, 40 years later... McDonald's still think they're being radical by using that artwork.
0: Paralleling never mind the bollocks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: (coughs) So it's just a bit yawn. I mean, I'm I'm a bit cynical now, I'll admit it. I'm cynical about music. I'm cynical about art. And, you know, people jumping on bandwagons, all of it. I've I've just been so much at the heart of the wrong end of that that it, it does damage you, you know, to be treated like shit for so long.
0: There's an interesting uh, story in your first book, just to reflect that, about the photographer who was assigned to you from Island Records who had a very clear plan about how you should look and how you should behave as a female act on the label.
1: Yeah, so we just signed to Island Records and, you know, it would be our first album, our first official photographs and everything. And this was typical. He was one of many, most men we came across he was assigned to us, and he wanted to put us in pink ripped plastic mini dresses with um a big fan blowing our hair. Now, luckily, we'd managed to get a deal where we had full artistic control. Now, how we hell we got that past them, I don't know. But still, it was a terrible fight, and he tried to get me thrown out of the band. Luckily, Dennis Spavel, the um producer, stood up for me and said, without the slit viv, there is no slits, you bloody idiots. But um, and this was all because he wanted, you know, and I fought him putting us in plastic dresses with the wind machine. But that was everywhere we went. That was everyone. <laughs> you know, it And, was and, and,
0: and that album, the, the album produced by Dennis Bovell, Cut, was extremely well reviewed, I think, by the music papers. I think by then, at least, the music critics had caught up with you. You had a, a minor hit with I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Then Return of the Giant Slits, which I think you think was an even better record
1: and then you don't yeah now this is the thing about britain at the time without britain without an internet a very small island you know one two radio stations two music papers that's why in a way i've realized that sort of popular culture um youth culture subcultures in england have been so strong it's because things move quickly through the country and also they get a little bit of you know, sort of airplay or whatever, and then move on to the next thing. It's not like America, where American can absorb band after band, you know, music genre after music genre. You can tour around the States. It can take you a couple of years. There's room for you to grow old, keep a loyal audience. There isn't room on our tiny island. So basically, the next thing came along.
0: New romantic. Yeah, new
1: romantic or whatever it was. And it was a bit more palatable and pretty. And um, that got on, you know, we we couldn't get on TV. They wouldn't show us. They thought we how we looked. It's so hard to say in context now, but it's important to understand context. How we looked was an absolute affront to mankind. And just to look at us was offensive to them. So we couldn't get any visual airplay uh, at all, or, or, and then we couldn't get any radio play because of our name, the slits. So, we were co- completely subversive, basically, and it was exhausting for us. But. Um i think i think the reason we were dismissed by island records because they had that small island mentality and <laughs> being called island records which was oh we're moving on to the next thing they didn't appreciate what we'd done now we're in the top 50 albums that Ireland ever re- released that in their top 50 and they have had damn fantastic major major artists on that label and we're in their top 50 so they understand now but what good does it do us now but in a way as an artist, and I have got the nerve to call myself an artist now, which I haven't had for years, um, you have to make work for yourself in a way, or you can't ever make work to please the times, otherwise you're an entertainer, which is fair enough, but we weren't entertainers, although we were actually incredibly entertaining, Um, that wasn't what we were after. We we would rather have changed the world a little bit, and I think we did.
0: And As far as most people were concerned then, for many years, that was the end of the story. Although you did make films and you worked as a television producer in terms of...
1: No, director.
0: Television director. In terms of kind of mainstream society, you were off the radar. You've come back now with two very successful books. Do you think that your early experience as a musician has helped you deal now with what you face as an author?
1: just to say I also made an album and an EP um, when I came back in my 50s which was no one made no older women made music when I came back to do it you know there again I had no role models but I heard this little voice in my head saying Viv everyone told you you couldn't do it before because you were a girl and you couldn't play and now they say you can't do it because you're a woman and you're too old and you can't play (laughs) and look what happened last time you made a classic album so yeah, in my 50s I came back and I made an album, an amazing album with a different, brilliant bass player on each track called Vermilion Border, which I'm really pleased of. That took with, And that took three years to make, and then I wrote a book, and then another book. It takes me about three years to make each project.
0: Just to go back on that, when you came back as well, you kind of had to relearn the guitar?
1: Yeah, I hadn't played, played the guitar for 25 years. And I couldn't play it the first time round, so you can imagine it was right back to zero. And I just sat at the kitchen table, you know, trying to get my fingers to move again. But then one night, I remember my daughter was doing her homework in the corner, and I was trying to play, you know, some chord, try and get my fingers back into a chord shape. And I got so frustrated, I started sort of smashing at the guitar. I had a little practice amp on. And then I started just going mad doing these things, leaving strings open and moving my fingers up and down. And she looked up and said, Mum. And mummy, you were born to play guitar. And um, it was funny because I was playing the way I used to play, which is a bit atonal, open strings ringing, um, you know, kind of modal sound. And I'd found myself again on guitar. And it's not about technique. It's about actually being honest to the sounds you like or the words, you know, whatever it is. Anyway, yeah, that was when when I knew I was back when she said that.
0: Yeah, and that's the point, I think, about being an artist as well. Again, in your first book, you refer to typical girls and having an unusual time signature. Mick Jones, who you had a relationship with from The Clash, said, play that in 4-4 four, four time, you'll have a hit with it. Yeah. But that's not how it was.
1: No, we weren't about compromising. Um, you know, we, we were our own worst enemies in that way. You know, Mick said, if you play typical girls in 4-4 four, four time, you, you'll have a top ten hit. Although he might have been wrong, because no-one would play us anyway. But... Um, we wouldn't do it. We, we, we thought, that's what I mean about how rigorous we were. We thought, no, we don't feel that 4-4 time. If girls are playing music for the first time, what really are the rhythms that really reflect what we feel and how our bodies work? And it wasn't 4-4 mechanic mechanical bang 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 timing that's how deeply we went into it we tried to sort of replicate the rhythms of our bodies in the in the music we played and it turned out to be quite strange timings you know jazz timing sometimes of which we had no idea we were doing but we were very rigorous about what we did and that's why I think Cut which is always being re-released now and the second album has been re-released now um, uh, still sound like they could have been made today
0: your second book, To Throw Away Unopened, is a memoir, but it reads like a thriller. There are little plot twists in there. It's very novelistic and it's beautifully written as well.
1: It is, like you said, a kind of detective story and about the crimes that get c- committed within a family. And they can be psychological crimes. You know, they're not always physical abuse. Uh, and I think Every family plot probably has some element of, you know, psychological crime going on because we've all come from other damaged families and et cetera, et cetera. And I wanted to look for the bodies and almost put the body back together, the body parts, you know. That bit of damage came from there, that came from there. And I just thought if I was absolutely honest, this book will resonate with anyone who's had any sort of family, a parent, a sibling. And we so often try and sort of sugarcoat to the outside world what our families are like, which makes other people who come from dysfunctional families feel so left out and so screwed up. And I just thought, no, I'm going to be so honest about it because that will be helpful. And I don't want to make work that isn't helpful.
0: Yeah, Cliché, but it's true. They fuck you up, your yeah. mum and dad. Yeah. They don't mean to, They're but they, to. Do. Yeah. And they do. And all yeah. mums and dads, and I, I feel that... <laughs> A horrible realization to have as a, as a parent myself yeah. is that you know you're bound to fuck your kids up you don't mean to but no. there will be things you do that mess them up one way or another your relationship with your dad who is one of the key characters in the book though is is very fraught
1: well writing about him he, he was an ogre in my childhood and, and I was made to see him as an ogre and, and he was a, really a twit, you know. But he was a very basic man, came from Corsica, you know, he was quite, came from peasant stock, really. He'd not been brought up any better. And I think what I gained through writing the book was an understanding of all the people I wrote about, including myself, and what brought us to the sticky place we were in. Because I was, I was you know, I wrote the book thinking we're in this sticky place my family and messy... How the hell did we get here? And why am I so full of anger? And why is our family such a mess? And I, I set about to unpick that and write about it almost like, like a thriller in a way, you know, like a Nordic thriller. Um, and, yeah, so my dad I have more understanding for. I have more understanding for everyone, in
0: The realisation that parents fuck you up, though, is something that you have to deal with as well because your daughter is seeing all this going on, your relationship with your mum... Mm. relationship with your sister and becomes aware of your relationship with your dad
1: Mm. yeah um, i obviously as we all do feel and probably more than in my mother's generation feel quite great responsibility towards my daughter and more awareness more awareness of children's mental health etc I mean I think she was my mother was brought up in quite unaware times and really it just makes you feel even worse (laughs) About the damage you you are like you said you know bound to be doing to them, um, I, I tried to keep my daughter very much out of the book, thinking I protected her only to sort of realize as she got older that she was being affected by it because friends read the book or they read the book before they really knew her, and her family was being talked about so i 've screwed up again you know i thought i 'll be honest i won 't be like my mother you know my mother 's generation very much uh, very secretive they 're known to be such a secretive generation they you know they had to keep appearances up and everything we don't have to do that so much and i thought i'm not going to be secretive with my daughter like my mother was and i've said too much to my daughter i've gone the other way so i you know you can't help but fail i think as a parent thank you thank you